This podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is a recording from the Summit on the Collegiate Athlete Experience at George Washington University on January 30th, 2006. This segment is titled Values and Choices, Issues for Athletes Including Substance Abuse, Performance Enhancing Substances, and Violent Behavior, with remarks by Knight Commission Vice Chair Dr. Clifton Wharton, a presentation by Frank Uriaz, President of the National Center for Drug-Free Sport, remarks by Kareem McKenzie of the New York Giants and formerly of the Penn State Nittany Lions, and discussion among Knight Commission and panelists about drug testing and performance-enhancing substances. For more on the Knight Commission, visit www.knightcommission.org. Good morning. I'm Alberto Ibarguin. I'm president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, which has supported the important work of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics since its inception 15 years ago. The Knight Commission was formed at a time of collegiate athletic scandals. Over time, it has positively influenced the national discourse about the role and structure of intercollegiate athletics and helped reaffirm the primacy of education as the mission and of presidential authority in, as the guiding, in guiding the course of intercollegiate athletics in our colleges and universities. The Knight Commission has never pretended to be the sole voice of right or reason on these subjects and has worked collaboratively with others to bring about positive change. It has also tried to state the things as they are, not as one might like them to be, and an example of that is a poll of American attitudes toward intercollegiate athletics, the results of which are being released this morning. The Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is an ongoing discussion, an ongoing dialogue about ethics and values in the context of athletics in our diverse society. This would be merely interesting if the discussion didn't affect and engage the student-athlete. So today is one of the times dedicated to hearing their voice. We are privileged to have several panels composed of extraordinary people who are in the main current or recent athletes and thoughtful and hopefully thought-provoking individuals. Our leader on the commission, Tom Hearn, the former president of Wake Forest University, is unable to be with us uh, this morning, and so it's my privilege to welcome you on his behalf and acknowledge the leadership of our two vice chairs of the Knight Commission who will co-chair today's events. They are Gerald Turner, president of Southern Methodist University, and Clifford Wharton, former president of TIA CREF and of the Michigan State University. On behalf of Amy Perko, the executive director of the Knight Commission, I'd like to acknowledge the cooperation of George Washington University in organizing this event. The administration has been outstanding in, uh, in, in helping us, and we appreciate that very much. To welcome you this morning, I'm especially pleased to um, to uh, introduce a, an old and very, very dear friend, the president of George Washington University, Stephen L. Trachtenberg. Steve? Thank you. I've been uh, looking forward to your uh, arrival, and I'm delighted you're here. Some of you may have noticed that the compensation of university presidents has received a lot of attention in the, uh, in, the recent, uh, in the recent past. And uh, it occurred to me that there was a uh, simple and straightforward way uh, to deal with this matter 
that actually fell under the jurisdiction of this uh, uh, group today as well, and that is to index the uh, pay of university uh, uh, presidents uh, to that of their uh, football coaches. I think the presidents would uh, go along without much of a protest. Uh, as for the football coaches, I'll leave that to you. Uh, at George Washington University, uh, we have, as you know, not lost a football game in over 40 years, and, uh, and we've done this without a coach, uh, and so uh, my own personal situation would be uh, uniquely challenged. Uh, but I like to think we could overcome this if we put our minds to it. The uh, second if very consequential point that I want to bring up with you has to do with the NCAA uh, rulebook, which uh, I once... Uh, lifted, and, uh, and then spent a week in the, uh, in the hospital with a strained back. Uh, the only comparable document I know of in the Western world is the Internal Revenue Code. And it, uh, it seems to me that um, just as we periodically uh, take a look at the Internal Revenue Code, it wouldn't uh, hurt us to uh, more regularly Look at the NCAA rulebook with the thought of uh, putting it on a diet. Uh, it's not that um, I don't think we need rules. God knows we do in this, uh, in this world. But uh, I always uh, feel that any document <clears throat> that's much longer than the United States Constitution uh, is probably not serving us as well as it, uh, as it might. Uh, I think also uh, it's useful to point out the uh, extraordinary importance of what's going on here today. I woke up this morning, I picked up the Washington Post, I looked for a department uh, uh, in uh, philosophy. I couldn't find one. But I had no problem at all finding an entire section on sports. It's clear that uh, sports is uh, very much on the minds of, uh, of uh, many Americans and that um, what, what we do in our sports departments, to some extent, speaks for our universities even more dramatically, <coughs> whether that's good or bad, I'll leave for others to debate, even more dramatically than uh, what we do in the uh, other uh, aspects of the university in which we uh, teach, uh, in the classrooms and in the laboratories and in the libraries. Now, it's true, uh, the Modern Language Association periodically gets together to tell us how we ought to teach English and languages. And they seem to have about as much fun as the NCAA does at its uh, annual, uh, annual meetings, but isn't ridiculed quite, uh, the uh, uh, NCAA isn't ridiculed quite as much as the MLA. Uh, nevertheless, all aspects of human endeavor call for uh, the negotiation of, uh, of uh, rules and serious uh, reviews of how we are uh, proceeding. And so again, I'm delighted to welcome you to George Washington University for these uh, very consequential proceedings. I can tell you that when I travel around the country, or for that matter, even in the District of Columbia, <coughs> hardly anybody raises questions with me about how things are going with my chemistry department. Nevertheless, uh, we uh, soldier on in chemistry and biology, but, but every time I sit down in a barber chair, every time I get into a taxi cab, Every time a, uh, a bellhop in a hotel as far away as California notices uh, my name or the tag on my luggage which says George Washington University, they inevitably raise questions about my uh, athletic program and these days uh, more regularly than often um, 
the men's and women's basketball teams, which have uh, been having, as you probably know better than I, uh, a, very, a very good season. Uh, I don't rely on this on a daily basis, but it is an observation that I see uh, perhaps more acutely than the president of Duke, for whom I presume it happens on a daily, on a daily basis and sometimes even more regularly than that. In any case, um, I, want to, uh, I want to encourage you in your work. I want to tell you, as somebody who went to a college that I will leave unnamed, uh, but started there uh, in 1955, and so uh, we have at least a half a century, uh, I look back on my own undergraduate experience and, uh, and recall that the only team we could uh, root for was the fencing team, and, uh, and that was not, in my judgment, sufficient, even during uh, uh, my college days and unto this day as an alumnus. Uh, I think intercollegiate, intercollegiate sports are, um, are very important. Uh, they're important to the nation. They're important to the individual schools. Uh, the students get great pleasure and, uh, and uh, excitement and enthusiasm uh, out of them. They help to brand the institution. And, um, and so, uh, what you are focusing on is something that goes to the very heart of the uh, university experience in America, and something which perhaps goes to the very heart of civilized uh, uh, men and, and women. As I look back over, uh, over history, uh, in the West and in the East, in Asia, all over the, uh, the planet, where there have been human beings, there have been uh, sports. And, uh, and so it is probably in the nature of our species uh, to engage in such activities. And uh, I congratulate you on your uh, commitment to seeing to it that we do it right. Thank you all very much. Uh, my name is Clifton Wharton. I'm uh, the President Emeritus of Michigan State University and also Vice Chairman of uh, this commission. Uh, I guess uh, Chuck Young, who's sitting be behind me and I, are probably the old longest serving uh, members of the commission. Um, a word of procedure before I begin. Uh, this morning we will have two panels. Uh, the presentations will be made by the panelists, followed by questions and answers or comments uh, from uh, selected members of the commission. Uh, this afternoon there will be a third panel uh, which will provide an opportunity for questions and answers and comments from the audience. Uh, this morning the first panel, as you have seen in your materials, uh, is titled Values and Choices, the Issues for Athletes Including Substance Abuses, Performance Enhancing Substances, and Violent Behavior. I'd like to make a few brief preliminary comments about this and particularly talk about values and academe because that is where the crux of the issues arise. A bit of definition. Uh, values determine personal and societal behavior and they influence and control what we do and how we do it. They're very abstract concepts and often unconscious but they do determine what is required of people, what is forbidden, what is praised, what is rewarded, and what is censured and punished. Is it wrong to cheat? Is it wrong to kill another human being? Is it wrong to lie to your parents or relatives? Is it good to honor one's parents and ancestors? Is it good to be religious? What importance is placed upon justice and the rule of law? 
So values gives a meaning to the total culture of a society and they influence individual behavior and group interaction on a daily basis. Colleges and universities also have special values which give answers to such questions as is published research truthfully performed and accurately reported? How is plagiarism dealt with? Does research follow the accepted canons of verification, testing, replication, and transparency? Does a professor give honest grades to students? Or are some given preferential treatment? Do students cheat on their exams or papers? And what are the consequences? What standards should a college adopt to determine when commercialism in funding research or athletics is too much? Is it only dollars that matters in the search for knowledge? Intercollegiate athletics as a subset of academe also has values. I give that as background because today's panelists will be discussing specific areas of behavior that reflect issues of values. This morning we're quite pleased to have a series of individuals, five, who will discuss this topic. The, we will divide the section into two. The first two speakers we will then be followed by a Q&A from the members of the commission and then the remaining three will make their presentations followed by questions and comments from the commission members behind me. One change in your materials on the members of the commission who will be participating in the first panel, in addition to Bill Asbury, Anita DeFrance, and Elson Floyd, and Judy Woodruff, we have now added, to replace others who are not here, Harding Carter and Chuck Young. So with that, let me begin this morning with a presentation by Frank Urias, President, the National Center for Drug Free and Sport. Frank? Dr. Wharton, thank you, and thank you for, uh, to the night. Uh, commission for having me here this morning. I've been asked to cover the topic of drug use in intercollegiate athletics and last week I was at a conference at the University of the Pacific where we spent an entire day on this subject and I've been asked to cover it in eight to ten minutes. So uh, it's a bit of a challenge but I will uh, do my best and uh, most likely will go uh, very quickly through the information this morning. Uh, the Center for Drug-Free Sport, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is the organization that athletics groups use to develop and administer their drug testing programs. We are the administrator for the NCAA's drug testing program, as well as the drug testing programs for about 150 colleges and universities. We also operate the drug testing program for minor league baseball and uh, conduct a number of programs in drug education and supplement education in professional and intercollegiate sports. Now, uh, for those of you who think that uh, it's uh, kind of a, a sexy, thrilling job to work in intercollegiate athletics, uh, I don't know if a few months ago you followed the USA Today, but they uh, voted on the 10 worst jobs in sport. And we were following this, and we discovered that those of us in drug testing had been elected to the fourth worst uh, job in sport. And uh, just to give you an idea of where we ranked, the fifth worst job in sport was being a sled dog in the Iditarod. And then we drug testers there are right below the sled dogs, but only slightly above rodeo clowns. So when you talk about the uh, pecking order in sport, we know uh, exactly where we stand. We... Uh, 
we take seriously the, the work that we do because it's important work. We work with athletes to help them uh, maintain a, sal- a safe and healthy environment, and we've seen significant improvements in the area of drug use in sport. And so we're very pleased with the work that we do and how far we've come in this area. I want to cover four areas very quickly this morning. Number one, I'll talk about the research regarding drug use in sport. Secondly, I'll talk a little bit about over-the-counter dietary supplements, drug testing, and then finally uh, identifying what is our role in deterring the use of banned drugs in sport. What we know about the use of drugs and supplements among intercollegiate athletes comes almost exclusively from the studies that the NCAA does periodically. In fact, those studies started in 1985, and they've been conducted every four years since then. The most recent one conducted in the 2004-2005 school year on well over 20,000 college student-athletes. And it's very important that we remember that in these studies, time after time, uh, the studies tell us that most athletes do not use performance-enhancing drugs and supplements, and that perceptions are not reality. And I stress this every time I talk with audiences, because although we spend a lot of time talking about those individuals who do violate our rules regarding drug use, most athletes are drug and supplement free, and it's very important that we continue to spread that message, especially as we come up against uh, the Olympic Games in a few weeks. We will be hearing, unfortunately, about the few cases of athletes who are caught doping in the Olympic Games in Turin. But again, we, we must focus on the fact that most athletes have made a decision to remain uh, drug and uh, supplement free. Drug use among the collegiate athlete population has been on the decline since the late 80s, and drug testing is uh, supported to a very large extent by the college community. Just to give you an idea of where our college student-athletes lie right now, most of our freshmen this year were born in 1986 and 1987, and workplace drug testing was implemented in the early 1980s. And in fact, the NCAA started drug testing in 1986. So our college athletes have grown up in a world where athletes are tested for drugs and it's just a way of life for them. Uh, In fact, they're very supportive of it. Uh, Also to give you a perspective, uh, Lynn Bias uh, died in 1986. And when I talk to college audiences about drug use, most of them do not know who Lynn Bias uh, is or was. And when I talk to them about Ben Johnson testing positive in the Olympic Games, um, they're not quite sure who Ben Johnson is or was. Uh, Also, I was speaking at a school out in Utah, and I made a reference to Nancy Reagan and Just Say No, and they knew who Nancy Reagan was, so I was pleased about that, but they weren't quite sure what Nancy Reagan had to do with drugs and Just Say No. So... Uh, We have to remember that uh, although they've grown up in a world of drug testing, they don't uh, know the experiences that we had in sport prior to the advent of of drug testing. We do know they're supportive of drug testing. The collegiate athletes in the NCAA study tell us that pros should be tested, Olympic athletes should be tested, 
and uh, they believe that the collegiate athletes should be tested, that that's appropriate. And most importantly, a majority now believes that drug testing deters the use of banned substances, and that's why we do it. We don't do it to catch people. It's uh, an effort to deter the use of banned substances. We also know that drug use differs by sport. Uh, when we do education, oftentimes we talk with the entire student-athlete population, but their drug use habits are very different. Even among men's or women's sports, we see differences in the use of supplements. We see differences in the use of, of drugs among a population, comparing collegiate basketball players to collegiate baseball players. So we've become much more targeted in our drug and supplement education in our collegiate audience because their use patterns, their use um, behaviors are much different depending on their sport. I am a firm believer that drug testing deters the use of banned substances. I think the NCAA data from the National Drug Use Studies uh, show that. Uh, in 1989, we had close to 10 percent of our collegiate football players using anabolic steroids within the previous year. Uh, since the NCAA implemented a year-round short-notice steroid testing program, we've made significant improvements in the level of steroid use. And yes, we'd like that number to, to be zero, uh, but uh, we've seen a significant decline in football and in other NCAA sports, and I think that's due in part, in large part, to the advent of drug testing. We've been reading a lot about high school athletes, and we are seeing increased steroid use in high school athletes. Uh, I believe that starts initially with the use of dietary supplements among young people and then leads to anabolic steroid use and other performance-enhancing drug use. There is disagreement among the researchers about the extent of steroid use among our high school athletes. You'll see numbers as high as 6 or 7%. Uh, the study that we use at Drug-Free Sport is the Monitoring the Future study out of uh, the University of Michigan that reports about 2 to 3 percent of 12th graders have at one point in their lifetime used an anabolic steroid. Uh, also, uh, some of the states have begun doing research on the extent of steroid use in the high schools. This is a report out of, the, uh, out of Iowa uh, where they found that about 4 percent of their high school seniors reported the use of anabolic steroids within the last year. If you believe that uh, steroids are difficult to obtain, uh, the student athletes will tell, uh, tell you differently. And in fact, a report that came out in November uh, by the GAO um, reported that anabolic steroids are coming into this country uh, on a very constant and consistent nature, ordered primarily over the internet uh, by high school and uh, college athletes, and in fact, the GAO actually it ordered internet steroids, uh, placed 22 orders for internet steroids, and actually received 14 shipments of the steroids in overnight mail. Those that came from foreign countries were actually anabolic steroids. The four that came from the U.S. Uh, were not anabolic steroids, so I guess the lesson to be learned is that if you're going to buy, you should buy from foreign sources. But um, what they found is they came primarily from Italy, Shanghai, and Athens, and that uh, you could purchase steroids for as little as $100 to anywhere to a few hundred dollars. So those of you who believe that 
it's too expensive for a high school athlete or college athlete to obtain steroids. Um, they're actually uh, fairly inexpensive. Uh, the picture you see is just an example of how some of the steroids came into the country. The, a book had been hollowed out, and the uh, oil-based injectable steroids then had been placed uh, in the book, and uh, in this case were caught, caught by customs, but in many cases they're uh, not caught at all. I can't spend a lot of time on dietary supplements. I will tell you that the current supplement laws in this country make it very difficult for us uh, to deter the use of uh, supplements, especially those that are, uh, contain performance-enhancing drugs. The one uh, significant way that the NCAA combats this problem is that they have a drug and supplement hotline. It's called the Resource Exchange Center. And any student athlete, before he or she takes any substance, may write or call and talk to a live human being through the hotline to obtain up-to-date and reliable information on dietary supplements and banned drugs. It's probably one of the finest educational tools we have uh, for the collegiate athletes. And we also have a number of educational products that are available for schools uh, regarding supplement and drug education. Just very quickly on drug testing programs, uh, we test to protect the health and safety of athletes, to protect the integrity of our sports, and to assure equitable competition. The NCAA, as I mentioned, started drug testing in 1986 and has been consistently testing at its championships for both men's and women's Division I, II, and three since 1986. In fact, this will be the 20th year of NCAA drug testing. In 1990, the NCAA moved to a year-round steroid testing program, and in fact, this year that will include uh, summer sports uh, and uh, athletes uh, in the summertime. It includes all Division I and II sports, and Division III is uh, considering adopting a year-round steroid testing program, perhaps effective in 2006. So these programs continue to evolve, they continue to improve, and as a result, I think we continue to see decreases in performance-enhancing drug use. At the high school level, drug testing is less common. A study that we did with the High School Federation in 2003 said about 13% of high schools were drug testing. We're seeing an increase in uh, drug testing in high schools and in communities, so I think you can expect that number to uh, to increase. Also know that the NCAA schools operate their own drug testing programs. It's much more common at Division I-A, and then as you move across the divisions, it becomes less common, where about 9% of our Division III programs are operating their independent drug testing programs. And finally, what would be our recommendations to schools and individuals regarding the, the uh, deterrence of banned drugs? Certainly, organizations have to have a drug testing policy, and it also has to deal with the use of dietary supplements. We also believe that the schools should be providing drug education and nutrition education to their student-athletes. We ask the athletic departments to continue to investigate what's going on in their own departments to make sure uh, that uh, coaches are not involved in any way in supporting or, or ignoring the use of banned supplements or performance-enhancing drugs. In the NCAA studies, uh, the athletes tell us that in many cases they believe that their coaches know that they're using 
these substances. And so we need coaches' education is critical uh, if we hope to continue to deter the use of these compounds. Uh, testing programs, uh, testing, I believe, is a significant deterrent to the use of banned substances. And the testing programs are increasing in number, not only at the collegiate level, but certainly at the high school level. Athletes have a very important role to play in deterrence. Uh, they need to continue to educate themselves about banned substances, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what's legal, what's illegal. Uh, I tell them that it's very simple to pass a drug test. All you have to do is refuse to use banned drugs and dietary supplements, and passing a drug test is a very easy thing uh, to do, and luckily a uh, majority of them believe that. We tell them they must use the Resource Exchange Center, and it's very important that the athletes establish non-use norms on their teams, and I think they're doing a better job of that. Also, and athletes have a very difficult time with this, we stress to them that they need to report suspected drug use to someone in authority uh, to change what's going on at institutions, whether that's alcohol abuse or performance-enhancing drug use. Athletes often have a difficult time letting someone know about their concern. Regarding the role of coaches, I don't know any stronger deterrent than strong non-use messages from the coaches. So many times uh, the coaches don't talk about the use of drugs, uh, don't have policies, they have unwritten rules, and coaches, I think, have a tremendous role to play in deterrence. Uh, we also tell coaches that they need to be supportive of the drug testing program and that they also need to make sure that their, their coaching methods are based on good research. Unfortunately, we have a number uh, in the, uh, of uh, strength coaches who will push the use of dietary supplements without significant uh, and reliable information that, in fact, they, they actually work. Uh, coaches, again, have a tremendous role to play, and we're growing our coaches' education uh, every year. And then finally, the parents. We're constantly asking the parents to help their athletes achieve performance enhancement in the ways that we know really work good nutrition, good coaching, plenty of rest, hydration, and not the use of performance-enhancing drugs. We're asking parents not to provide supplement uh, money for dietary supplements. In many cases, the supplements the kids are, are buying are obtained from the parents. And uh, finally, we are asking our parents to set reasonable expectations uh, regarding performance enhancement and their sons and daughters' participation in, uh, in sport. Uh, so with that, it's a, a lot of information, but thank you very is, much. Um, a former football player at Penn State and currently a player for the New York Giants, Kareem McKenzie. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, my role here is to give you an idea of what it means to grow up in an environment conducive to sports and being around uh, different numbers of athletes because in high school myself, I competed in track and football. Uh, football, for me, was no necessary need to use uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, I remember as a child growing up through, uh, I guess it was junior high school, that all my friends would ask me, are you going out for football? I never gave it any thought myself. Uh, football was nothing that I really didn't aspire to do. I didn't dream of being in the NFL or anything of that nature. I loved school for what it was, you know, getting an education. And they said, well, you should try it. 
So I went out, and my coach talked to me. He said, well, son, you know, at that time I was about, I don't know, maybe six foot, 200-some-odd pounds. And he said, well, you know, one day you can play in the NFL. I said, well, coach, you know, how do I do that? You know, he said, well, you can go to college for free. We said that. That piqued my attention. You know, and next thing you know, I'm a 10th grader, 6'5", 285 pounds. My senior year, I was 6'6", 330 pounds. So size was never really a problem for me myself because I could always naturally gain size. But today's athletes, I get a lot of questions from the younger kids who came up behind me uh, that are now in college. And they're saying, well, you know, what do you do to become a stronger athlete? I said, we have to work hard. No, there's no easy shortcut to going out there and being a good, sound football player. You can be as big as you want, you can be as strong as you want, but there are no, there's no, there are no clocks on the field, there are no weight benches, no squats. You have to be a smart athlete. And what, and what entails being a smart athlete? You have to know what you're doing on the football field, you have to be prepared for it, you have to study it, and most of all, you have to be careful. And in that, I'm sort of in a subtle way, subtle way saying, don't be stupid. Don't you know, go ahead and put yourself in the danger of harming your body. Because you, know, you always hear coaches talking about there's a difference between being hurt and being injured. Being injured is you can't go, you can't play, they hold you out. But when you're hurt, you can go along, you know, just a little bruise, a nick, something that doesn't keep you out of the game. Well, you're going to go ahead and injure yourself or hurt yourself mortally if you use steroids. Steroids is not the answer to going ahead and being a good, sound football player. So I get a lot of questions, you know, the general questions from when I do my community service, you know, type of car do you drive, you know, how'd you get that big, what do you eat? I eat regular food. I'm just like the average human being. I was just blessed with size and the ability to use my talents to choose a career that provides for me and my family. So a lot of these questions, a lot of this information that I'm reading today is new to myself because I never thought that it was that prevalent in high school sports. I mean, we had an individual when I was growing up in uh, South Jersey in track where a kid was just phenomenal at the shot put, you know, but when he got to the college ranks and the NCAAs, he never went anywhere. You know, there were some rumors that he might be using steroids, and there were some signs. We, we didn't know. We always thought, you know, it was gossip. But at the same time, I look back now on those experiences, and I say, well, where is he now as an individual? Where is that person that now that was a phenomenal athlete in high school, but now nine years down the road, he's nowhere to be seen? You know, was it steroids? It could have been. Was it that he couldn't make it as a collegiate athlete, the academic part of it? Because that's something that we always, we always forget about, I think, when we talk about steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, is the fact that these kids want to go to the next level of their respective sport, whether it be baseball, football, hockey, soccer, whatever it is. These kids want to go ahead and be in the limelight. And the only way they see doing that is by going ahead and attracting the attention of some of these Division I coaches who want the strong athlete, the good athlete, the All-States, the All-Americans. They want these athletes who will go ahead and make their program better. Because when I went to college, it was, well, who has the biggest weight room? Who has the most practice fields? None of that stuff, when I look back at it now, matters now because it doesn't matter how big your weight room is, how many fields you have to practice on. You can only use one field at a time. You can only go ahead and bench, get on one bench at a time, one squat. It doesn't matter how big and how the grandeur of it all. It's how hard you work within the environment that you have. And nothing made me realize that more than when I came to the NFL and looked at the different facilities that they have throughout the NFL itself, 32 teams, and they're all on a different level. 
There's no, most, there's no such thing as, well, we have the biggest weight room or we have the best equipment staff. It's all about what you're given and how you deal with it. And nothing says that even more than looking at these past five years, different NFL Super Bowl champions. Look at the New England Patriots. Look at the Baltimore – who was it? Baltimore Ravens? I'm going back a little bit far here because I work with the NFL a little bit. But um, with the Baltimore Ravens years ago, you know, and look at Tampa Bay, who's done a phenomenal job of going ahead, John Gruden going down there and winning a Super Bowl championship. And from what I've been told, they have the absolute worst facilities in the NFL. But kids don't understand that. They don't see that. All they see is Sundays going out there, playing football, being in the limelight, and being that Javon Curse, that Julius Peppers, Michael Strahan. They identify with the stars of the sports. But they don't understand and recognize the hard work it takes to get out there on the field every Sunday and perform day in and day out. But I think that if we go ahead and try to give these young athletes who are in high school, junior high school, an understanding of what it takes to be successful as an athlete, as a community citizen, a community-minded person, they'll better understand, I'm sorry, what it takes to be a good individual first and foremost. Because no one tells these students at the, at the forefront that the average NFL career is only 3.3 years long. No one says that every Tuesday, well, your day off, they bring in anybody and everybody to take your position. They don't understand what it is in and out to be a professional athlete. So I think that's where we want to start also. We're trying to get these kids to understand that performance-enhancing drugs, don't, they're not the answer, plain and simple. Uh, we'll take much. about you, uh, 15 minutes for questions and answers from the panelists, uh, from the commission members, and I would ask them to introduce themselves for the sake of the website at the time they ask the question. So who would like to go up? Chuck Young? No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I have a Good. question. Judy Woodruff. For uh, Frank Urias, it, it, you paint a picture of um, enormous improvement in, uh, in the use of uh, banned substances. And so my question to you is, is this a problem we should even be focusing on? I mean, you said you've gone in football from, what, 8.4% 20 years ago to 1.2%. Are we over worrying about something that isn't really that big a problem anymore? Well, it's an issue you never really stop worrying about. In fact, people have, have mentioned that perhaps now that the numbers look so good, we could stop testing. Um, but again, that uh, avoids the, the obvious, and that is that we test because uh, it's a, a deterrent. Uh, I think the NCAA has done an, an excellent job of, uh, of drug testing and drug education. I think the numbers are coming down. I think we have er other areas of sport uh, perhaps not of concern to this commission as much as uh, the intercollegiates, but um, you know we don't have a widespread uh, testing program in our two-year colleges, and that's a problem. Um, we don't see much in the smaller colleges, the NAIA schools, and we're seeing increased steroid use in, in the high schools. So I, if, if a group were to ask me where it should focus its energies, uh, it would be, I would say, in the junior high and high school level right now. Uh, Frank, if one were to compare drug use between athletes and non-athletes, how would those numbers look? Well, they look very good for what we call drugs of abuse or, or um, street drugs or whatever terminology you want to use. Generally, the, the use of marijuana, cocaine, other uh, uh, drugs of abuse are much lower among the college athlete population than the general student body. Where it's higher is the use of performance-enhancing drugs. 
Uh, there's very little uh, need for a, a, the, the average student to use ephedra or to use an anabolic steroid. And so that's why organizations like the NCA will focus their initiatives on performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, now, alcohol use is, a, is an interesting issue. Uh, when we look at the drug of choice in co among college students, it's alcohol. And the latest NCAA uh, drug use study when it comes to alcohol shows something that we're seeing in, in the rest of the, the college community, and that is we, we're, we're losing the middle. And what I mean by that is that the moderate drinker is disappearing, and we're seeing uh, more abstainers, and we're seeing more individuals who drink to excess. And, we're, and so the athlete population is mirroring what's happening on campus when it comes to alcohol consumption. I think that's, I think that's very interesting. Carter? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Mr. McKenzie, I, I'm interested, going back to the high school situation, and who do those kids model themselves after? I mean, is there a clear understanding there? You were making good points, uh, but I'm a little less rosy viewed about what's happening in the high schools than I am about what's happening in colleges, to be perfectly frank. Um, is there a clear message getting out to the kids about drug use? I don't think really that it's really focused when the uh, individual NFL teams go out to schools to talk to kids about different situations in life itself. I've been asked to talk from any number of subjects from steroids to drug use to uh, being a good community-minded citizen to just being a good sportsman. I think it's something that the principals and different coaches of various high schools uh, basically ask for drug education and steroid use when we go when you go to a school because mainly we focus upon the given message that the principal or administrators want us to convey to the students themselves and if we don't see it as a prevalent problem ourselves because you have to remember now we're coming to a school based on a given need and if the high school doesn't provide that we need you to talk about steroids or a given situation we really won't touch upon it because they want us to focus on a certain subject that they might be having a problem with and that's what we mainly focus on. Yes. Uh, Chuck Young. Uh, Mr. McKenzie, I'd, I'd like to follow up on your comment about uh, the things that, uh, that high school students look at when they're looking at a university, what university they should attend. And it seems to me, uh, from what you've said and from my own experience, that we're sending the wrong message to people. We're, we're talking about the wrong things. Uh, we're talking about how big the weight room is or how many practice fields we have rather than what kind of an education you can get and what kind of an opportunity you have to play and excel in the sport of your choice. What can we do to change that? Basically, what you can do is make sure that you ask your prospective students the necessary questions, what are their goals in life? You know, you want to know what that student is all about uh, as far as education-wise is concerned because you have a lot of students who, even when I was in college, all of a sudden they had to change their major because... They were at school messing around, and they missed their opportunity to be in the right major. So all of a sudden you have turf grass management, uh, archaeological studies, history, things of that nature where they're not really focusing in on what they went to school for in the first place because they're not focusing on being going to school or college to be uh, a business major or anything of that nature. They're going there to play sports, you know, to be the limelight of the college campus. 
And we have to change that focus because I know at Penn State that when we went to school, it was it baffled me that some of the scholarships, postgraduate scholarships that I won, went towards my current scholarship. Some awards that I had won, I said, well, wait a minute, wasn't my scholarship already paid for by the university? So how is that scholarship that I win during my undergrad, they go ahead and take and say, well, this goes to help towards your grant and aid. It baffles me that some of these universities have these high budgets where they count in the dollars that a respective school makes from a bowl game. That just doesn't seem fair to me because you look at it, these students are basically working two jobs when they play a collegiate sport. They're not only studying to do what they want to do in life after this sport is over, but they're also playing sports, which is a high requirement on a student to ask them to come in there, have a full-scale full schedule of 16 credit hours, and to participate in the collegiate sports. It's a hard and long day, something that I didn't understand when I first went to school. My first semester there was very tough for myself, having to go through a full-day schedule of classes, then go to practice and study hall at night. All these things are required of these students to perform on and off the field. It's a double standard. And a lot of people don't understand that when you are a collegiate athlete that some professors love you and others hate you because they see that you, you're given the opportunity to be a better person, a better athlete. And they also think at the same time that you're giving an easy grade because you do play sports. Well, some professors will do that. I will admit it. They do do it. They do take a liking to you because you play sports. You play a great sport for the school, but other professors don't like you at all. They make it harder for you. They want to see you fail. And I think that needs to be addressed also because a lot of these professors think that because I'm a college athlete, I'm a dumb football player. <laughs> I don't know anything. I came to school just to play football. I went to school to get my education, which I did in three and a half years. And I have my, and I have my degrees in business management, and I did very well at it. But a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of these athletes go to school to get their education because, to be honest, not everyone's going to be a football player, a baseball player, or a basketball player. It's not going to happen. There are how many Division I A schools that have collegiate sports? There are only 32 teams in the NFL, 1,800 players total. All these kids go to school thinking that they're the next Andy Katzenmoyer, Jerome Battis, whomever it may be. There are only 1,800 positions in the NFL. You can't go ahead and kick everyone out and all of a sudden have a new batch. Some will make it, some won't. So I think these schools need to go ahead and focus on being or having higher graduation rates and being better professionals, first and foremost. If you want to come to school to be a business manager, talk to our business school. These are people that we have in these positions in the business world. Talk to these people, because not everyone makes it. That's the plain and simple truth. I don't think anybody will think that you were a dumb football player. <laughs> and neither did France. Thank you. Know. And to your point, there are about the same number of professional athletes, men and women, as there are neurosurgeons in this country. Guess who has a longer earning yeah. period? I can uh, tell you that in a heartbeat. Anybody yeah. besides a football player, a professional yeah. athlete. Yeah. Right. Well, my question actually went back to what you know and who you tell. Um, you evidently were not approached by anyone about the potential of supplements. Um, did you hear about other athletes? And once you got to the pros, did any of those athletes talk to you about how it happens? Because that is the key. How does it happen and how do you stop it where it happens? Really, you look at when I came into the NFL in 2001, the New York Jets, and there wasn't really that prevalent of a substance or performance-enhancing drug use. It was more so supplements. And supplements were something that were a dime a dozen. Really, the NFL had not yet enacted their 
uh, strict rules and guidelines on the actual uh, purity of supplements at that point in time. So at that time, there was EAS, who was a very big uh, drug company at that point in time, and different other supplements that were trying to cater to the NFL, saying, well, this athlete used this, this linebacker uses this one, uh, this wide receiver endorses this one. Well, the NFL finally said, you know what, let's stop all of that and go ahead and make sure that we enforce strict guidelines for these supplement companies to use to make sure that their products are pure. Because whether or not a drug is pure, whatever it has in it, if you take it, it's your responsibility. It doesn't matter if it's aspirin from the drugstore or a doctor prescribes it for you. It doesn't matter as far as the NFL is concerned. If it's in your body, you're responsible for it, and you will be penalized. Thank you. Yeah. We'll take oh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead, Anita. Also now for Frank, um, we speak of drug testing, and I've heard – you. I mean, everyone talks about it, but each drug test can be different, and what you're looking for may be different. You mentioned alcohol and marijuana and cocaine and steroids and ephedrine. Is there a way, when you say drug test, that you know exactly what it's for? And then again, to whom is it reported, especially at the high school level? Well, it, it is a very broad term. There's no question about it. Uh, we have excellent labs that uh, do this work, and they call it a drug test, and we have labs that aren't so good, and they call it a drug test uh, also. So that, that's a problematic area. Uh, I'm not a firm believer that, that every drug test has to be the same. Uh, I think we have uh, problems in certain sports. We ought to uh, tailor our drug testing to those, uh, those sports. Should the uh, test that's done on professional athletes be the same test that's done on Olympic athletes and collegiate athletes? Probably not because our, our issues are, are different. Uh, but yes, you're right. The, a, a test is not a, a test is not a, a test. But generally, we we tend to group it all together. Uh, clearly, the tests that will be used in the Olympic Games in a few weeks are probably the most sophisticated tests that exist right now. And uh, speaking for the NCAA, uh, they try to replicate that test. But is it necessary for a high school athlete to get an Olympic test? I don't think so. Just just follow up one question. Um, sophisticated tests suggest that there are sophisticated ways to mask the drugs themselves. Who's winning the race? Well, it's uh, we always call it the, the proverbial cat and, and mouse race, but I think that the, the masking uh, is a much larger issue at the very top levels of sport than it is at the levels that, that we're dealing with. Unfortunately, we paint with this broad brush and say that you know it's affecting every level. Uh, it's very difficult to beat a drug test, and despite what you read in the papers, we're actually pretty good at, at what we do. But there are people who are working against us, and uh, there's no doubt about that. There are chemists who are developing drugs that we cannot detect. And so that's why it's so important that the work that we do be at university-based laboratories. Dr. Young and I were talking. Uh, he was instrumental in getting the laboratory established at UCLA back in 1986, and that lab continues to do tremendous work uh, in this area. But it's very important that this work be done at research labs. I'll take one more. Bill Asbury? Yeah, just a, a sense, and perhaps I'll also ask this to Jamel later. Um, the, the subject of this panel has to do with values and choices, and it also deals with violent behavior. And um, an observation about the behavior, particularly in basketball, professional basketball and professional football and college football, about what, what fuels, Kareem, the, the appearance that 
behavior of some of our athletes in college and in pros, um, violence, particularly directed toward other athletes and off the field directed toward women particularly, is fueled by substance abuse or mm. alcohol. And, and how is this uh, behavior addressed on the teams? Really, when I think you look at the violence factor of uh, sports, whether it be football or basketball, and when you think about football for myself, it's a very violent sport. It's the closest thing to, I guess you would say, a gladiator competition back in the Roman times because it's not just a team against team, it's man against man. And there are many battles within the game itself. And the more violent you are, sort of the more ferocious you can be, the more coveted you are as a player. You look at uh, the different commentators that comment on sports of just how tough a player is, this uh, level of toughness, how many games he's played in a row, or that vicious tackle, or did you hear that hit, the uh, top ten hits. that you, you see all these different uh, comparisons to violence, and, you know, sometimes players can't separate that from the field you know, regular life from being on a football field. Because I know myself, whenever I'm acted upon with a certain amount of force, I have an automatic reaction to where it's game time speed. Because you bring a certain level of force. You're trying to impose your will on that other player. And when you condition yourself to be that way, when it's coached to you day in, day out, from high school to college to professional sports. I mean, college, my high school coach was always telling me, you're not mean enough. And I say, well, what do you mean mean enough? Why should I be mean and lose control? That's not a smart player to, my, to, to me. My mother always told me, be a smart player, not a stupid one. Anybody can be dumb and run around and just chase anybody. Anybody can do that, but it takes a smart individual to go out there and be consistent. So I think that you have to, you have to look at from Pop Warner to all the way up through the professional ranks of what are we teaching our kids as far as our sports are, sports are concerned? Because when we look at football, oh, he's a tough tackler. He, oh, Dick Buck is tight, the, the, the Jack Hams. You look, it's violence. And when you're conditioned to be a violent person on the field, to a certain extent, you can't separate it because your body is conditioned. Football is all about reaction, how you react to it. You can't think in football. You think you get hurt or you don't succeed. So it becomes reactionary. And being a professional athlete, those reactions are conditioned. And when you see a certain situation, you don't think, well, no, I'm at home now. You don't think, well, no, I'm out on the football field. You just react because that's what you've taught your body to do over how many, how many number of years. So I think it's how we approach our individual sports and we teach the game itself. That's the most important thing that we can do. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast was from a recording of the Summit on the Collegiate Athlete Experience on Monday, January 30th, 2006. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.